Welcome to The Shed Wireless, a podcast from the Australian Men's Shed Association, shoulder to shoulder, virtually. Hello and welcome to Episode 5, Series 2 of The Shed Wireless. Coming up, his heart stopped while he was singing and dancing, raising much-needed bushfire relief funds. The original Yellow Wiggle, Greg Page, opens up about his near-death experience and how you can get involved in a mission that might just save your life. I've been to a shed birthday party and found out all the -the behind-the-scenes news from Gisborne, including one member who is having his 93rd birthday. You'll meet him soon. Are you grumpy? Were you yesterday? Will you be tomorrow? Grumpy Old Men may be a movie, but it's based on real-life behaviour, and Stuart and Rip have both stopped sulking long enough to tackle the problem for us this episode. We will ask the doc and get a second opinion when it comes to ageing and how we can avoid getting down about it. All that much more ahead on this episode of The Shed Wireless. Hello, I'm Aaron Carney, and we're joined by Executive Officer of the Australian Men's Shed Association, David Helmers. Hello. Hello, Aaron. How have you been travelling since last time we chatted, mate? Yes, really good. I won't ask you to do this, but if I asked you to sing a series of Wiggle songs, could you bang a few out? Uh, I've got a young child at home. Of course I could, mate. (laughs) It's been a few years, but I still remember the hot potato. This is a bit of a politically incorrect joke, but... I have said once or twice to people, when I finally lose it and, you know, the police are taking me down with the plasticine guns and whatever else because I've lost my mind and I'm marching the streets naked, you can blame the Wiggles because those bloody things on repeat will send anybody over the edge. I'll confess I have been to a Wiggles concert, actually, thinking about it. I've been to two Wiggles concerts (laughs) because I um, took Billy to see the Wiggles when he was a young lad and I saw the Wiggles myself when I was a younger lad, but not in that format. The the cockroaches. And saw him up here in Newcastle many a time, mate, many a time. So, yes, I, I was, I'm too old to be a childhood Wiggles fan, but I was there for the cockroaches, mate. And they had one or two good hits as well. We're talking about grumpiness this episode. Do you battle the grumps? You? What? Me? Never. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> You're a little bit deceptive. Sometimes you give off a grumpy vibe, but you're actually not a grumpy person at all. I'm not a grumpy person, but if you ask people in my life, am I grumpy? They'll say, yeah, he's always grumpy. But um, you're right. As a perception, I'm very rarely ever grumpy. I just um, cast that image, I suppose, by default. Well, sometimes deliberately too, I think, do you? Yes, yes. It's not deliberately, Aaron, strategically. <laughs> strategically. Important difference. Important it, difference. A big difference, mate. But, yeah, I do get grumpy like everybody. You have your ups and downs and work pressure or the environment that you're in at the time. And, yeah, I think it's a natural thing to get grumpy every now and then. But um, I think it's a rite of passage too, and I think most of the blokes out there will agree as you get older you're entitled to get grumpier. Yeah, and this is sort of the pointy edge of where our conversations are going to go around this is that everybody's entitled to be grumpy and, in fact, it isn't the exclusive domain of older men. There's plenty of grumpy women. You can get grumpy at any stage. Mm -hmm. But when it becomes the defining characteristic of your personality, you might want to wonder what the implications are for your quality of life. So. 
Yeah, I'll be interested to listen to that one. I think I might have to try and cast a different light sometimes and not, not be seen so grumpy. You do cast a different light sometimes. Sometimes. On that, when do you feel old? We're talking about that sometimes it's a sudden awakening. Sometimes it is something that we suppress and then it dawns on us over time. But there is the realisation that we are getting older do you feel it from time to time? If so, when? Oh, look, I famously say every time I get up of the morning, look in the mirror, I still see a 21-year-old. <laughs> um, but only the other day I realised that was a big photograph and not a mirror anymore. <laughs> the natural ageing stuff that we all get used to, the aches and pains that weren't there, takes a longer to pull up after a bit of a, a night out with you know a few friends or something. But I think, you know, your physical ability is always um, going to be affected as you get older. But I think it's also a mental thing as well. You think differently as you get older. And I started a few years ago noticing how I addressed problems or how decisions I made put more thought into it and be a lot more cautious as you get older as well. There's far less risk-taking as you get older. And I think, you know, that's one of the key things now when I stu- you know, start to feel old, generally after I make it, made a decision to do something or not to do something, I thought, yeah, that was an old bloke decision, that one. <laughs> <laughs> Funny you mention that. I'm reading a book at the moment. It's called Lifespan and it's about the work that's going on in genetics and various other areas about expanding how long we're likely to live. And it takes time in a chapter to talk about what would it do to us as a society and what would it do to each of us mentally if we were actually thinking the finishing line was 120, not 80. Hmm. How would you adjust your thinking if basically 60 was middle age, not 40? Yeah, yeah. And it's an interesting idea to kick around. Mm, it is. And to a degree, I think I still, you know, when I um, said there about looking in the mirror and seeing a 21-year-old, I think that's also a psychological thing. I, I still behave and think like I'm a 20-something-year-old sometimes. So I think that's one of the things of staying younger, longer, if you believe it yourself you will have that flow-on effect with you. And, yeah, I don't feel myself, even though I'm well past the middle age now, I don't feel myself as a, as getting older. I've got that attitude that, no, there's, there's a lot of days left in me yet. Oh, I remember when I was younger, older blokes saying to me, oh, mate, you feel the same on the inside. It's only the outside that goes crusty. And I thought, what a stupid thought that is. It's 100% true, though. It is. It is. <laughs> yeah. You still feel it, but um, also feel the the old age starting to catch up physically. <laughs> what is news at AMSA HQ this week? Uh, look, we've been really busy um, the last couple of weeks. You know, lots of new initiatives. We're well, we're one episode away now from our for Men's Sheds Week episode. So there's a lot of new things coming out this year that we're doing around Men's Shed Week. So myself and the entire team have been very busy there working on these things and that will all be revealed in the coming 
coming weeks. Also, you know, with the readjustments here, what we're doing internally, phones have been ringing hot as they do with inbound calls, but the staff have been slowly getting through the database and trying to contact sheds on a one-on-one basis around the country. Obviously, there's been a very much a focus in Victoria at the moment because of them still being in lockdown. So we're still checking up on all those sheds on a daily basis as often as we can just to touch base and see how they're doing and make sure they're looking after their members of their sheds as well and everyone's looking after each other, mate. So it's been pretty chaotic here at the moment. Yeah, and of course, you don't always have to wait for the phone to ring. If you need help, then AMSA is here to take your call. So it's a two-way conversation, isn't it? It is, it is, and you know, we're, we're getting lots of those calls and um, a lot of sheds, are, as we know, are reopened and getting the numbers back and getting back to normal operations, but um, unfortunately around the country and there's still a number of sheds that still remain closed and a lot of men out there are very keen to get back to work and make a bit of that man candy called sawdust. I can hear people getting grumpy and saying, get on with it, <laughs> so let's get on with the show. Staying strong. Staying sharp and staying healthy with the Shed Wireless. Here's a little thought experiment for you. If I asked you to draw a picture of someone who is grumpy, I'm prepared to bet the mortgage money that most of you would draw a picture of an older man scowling, about to tell those damn kids to get off his lawn. Why is it that so many older blokes get grumpy? And does any good actually come from it? Stuart Torrance is AMSA's Men's Health Project Officer. Hello, sir. How are you going, Aaron? I'm good. Grumpy, not just one of the seven dwarves, a whole way of life if you choose it. <laughs> I, I, I was interested in your, um, in your intro in regards to, you know, why isn't it grumpy old ladies? You don't, you don't actually hear of, of women being called grumpy old anything. No, and yet a few of them invariably are. Mm. But there is a reason perhaps why certain section of older blokes have a reputation for being grumpy. That's because a certain section of us are. <laughs> that's, that's true. That's true. And some of them got sheds. Yes, they do. Who's the grumpiest bloke in your shed? I bet you can all think of who it is as well. (laughs) There'd be two or three names at the top of the list anyway. (laughs) Gold, silver and bronze. (laughs) Well, well, let's start with a definition. What do you think grumpy is? I I think it's a mood. I I, I think it's all about mood and, uh, and it usually has something to do with something else. There's something underlying that... um, just puts us in that frame of mind. A grumpy mood isn't a problem. A grumpy habit is. Oh, if you're prolonged at it, then there's something really wrong. You know, there's something that needs to be looked at, I think. You've got some um, some unresolved issues, let, let me put it that way, I, I think, if, if you're constantly grumpy all the time. Elaborate on that idea. What do you mean by that? Is it, well, it's not good for your health. Like, on, on the whole, we, we swing... Everywhere from absolute crying in our in our pillows to to happy as the the day is long, um, and grumpiness is is in amongst that mix. But at the end of the day, if you're grumpy constantly, then 
there's something that you you haven't addressed, like um, the, the, the you know a loss of a loss of uh, identity, mm. uh, and that's uh, quite often something that men fight with come retirement. They once were the provider and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But they forget they've built up this nest egg uh, of uh, wealth, of uh, uh, provision, of house, home, uh, and contents, uh, so as they can retire. You know, they should be taking pride in what they've done. Mm. We we sometimes challenge ourselves. A politician mate of mine who retired <laughs> refers to it self-deprecatingly as relevance deprivation disorder. You know, once upon a time you felt you are important and mattered. Yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I've got no relevance, which of course you do have relevance. That's what you just said. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's almost like it's snatched away. And, and quite often men, unfortunately, don't plan for retirement. We plan financially for retirement. We... You, you know, we sort of say, well, I'm going to play golf from now on or I'm going to go fishing from now on. But, you know, a whole year's worth of fishing three days a week, I, I don't think it could become boring because I'm a fisherman. But I think after a while it would be like, well, what's my purpose? What, what's all this about? Uh, and I could see how that could get you into a, a grumpy frame of mind where you, you're telling kids to get off your lawn, how you, you want hand out lollies at Halloween and... All them sort of things. My word's not yours, but the point you were making earlier is that very often grumpiness masks something else that's going on. Is it a little bit like, Mm. and I hesitate to use this example to call us all dogs, but you know at the dog shelter, if some dog has been mistreated, if they're sad, if they're scared, that often manifests as barking and growling and biting and, in fact, grumpiness and anger can be closely related to sadness, can't they? Well, uh, I would suggest that grumpiness can come from anger, mm. like uh, some some unresolved issue, some argument that, you know, you didn't win, some argument that you just can't go there, i.e., you know, if you're having a, a dispute with your, your partner you're, and you know that you've sort of come to a line that if you go over it, this is over, <laughs> but you haven't actually resolved what you were arguing about. So, you know, you sort of sulk. I suppose to a to a degree, and that comes across as, uh, as as grumpiness. And it's a bit of a protection mechanism as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I could see that. I I, um, I, I could see that uh, the the festering is a, a way of expressing your displeasure uh, and your. Uh, I suppose your um, subliminal thought is: I hope someone sees this and comes across. And then I can resolve it. And then I can get it off my shoulder. And I think that's one of the good things about the shed. You can talk about what's on your mind and get off your chest uh, anything into the shed because really at the end of the day, your mates will just listen and then go about their business. But you vent it, if, if you know what I mean. Hopefully gets people out of their grumpiness. I think it's one of the things that the sheds do really well when they do it well, and that is because you're seeing a bloke once or twice a week over time, you Mm. almost get a sense of what his baseline personality is, right? So then if you've seen some major variations from that baseline, then that can get your spidey senses tingling, that can get an orange light flashing, and increasingly sheds have the capacity and the desire to step in and intervene. Yeah. 
Well, I've, I've actually, uh, he, here's a, sh- a shared story that I've uh, come across and it was about a lady that got quite jealous about her husband enjoying himself so much down the shed that she actually said, you can't go to the shed anymore. And about two months later, she drove up uh, in the car with him in the passenger seat and said, get out. <laughs> Sent him back to the shed because he'd just become a grumpy old man. She then saw the purpose of the shed and then they'd been on top of each other for the, the past couple of months. So um, that's, a, that's a great ungrumpy story. <laughs> All right. You are somebody who, like everyone else, has had your share of successes and your share of challenges. You are not at all a grumpy person, certainly not in my experience of you. So how do you avoid being grumpy? Just don't be around me when I'm grumpy, let me tell you. When things, you know, don't go your way and um, – things uh, that you expect to happen don't happen, it can be very easy to talk yourself down into a hole. And that expresses itself in, in grumpiness. I don't want to do this. I don't want to go there. I, I don't, I don't, I don't. And um, you became, well, I become uh, exceptionally negative. You probably don't see that too often these days because I, I recognise my spiral into a, a, a negative space and I consciously seek to get something to lift me out of it, whether it be a, watching a video, watching a comedy, watching something uplifting and inspiring like on YouTube. All them sort of things encourage me and, and I suppose give me a, a, a sense of where I fit in in the picture of things. You know, if you're feeling hard done by, just start looking at pictures of uh, quadriplegics and paraplegics and things like that. And and the smile that's on their face, regardless of their circumstances, certainly starts to take you out from your, your grumpiness and takes you over to uh, amazement and just a, a, an admiration for these people that have gone above and beyond what their, their circumstances. And then you go, well, Struth, my life's not that bad at the end of the day. Yeah, I think that sort of benchmarking is a real skill. How have you trained yourself, though? I don't think anybody deliberately decides to be grumpy, and very often they don't even recognise it in themselves when they're being it. So how did you train yourself to see the grump and ungrump yourself? It takes me back to the the time I um, tried to stop smoking and I took the uh, the, the, the pharmaceuticals um, that, that put me in a, a really dark place. But it was my wife that saw it and it was my wife that said, I better get onto this. And as I've said before, that was an extremely fortunate uh, set of circumstances that happened because, you know, within a couple of days I was uh, taking me and the family out. So she noticed it uh, and took me off to professionals that uh, could assist, have a have a talk, have a look at what was causing the problem, took me off the thing, gave me something else that put me into a better frame of mind. And then once that was resolved, we actually sat down and had a serious conversation about us being in a negative space because we we both do it to a to an extent. We both went through the loss of our house, the loss of our business, and all them sort of things. So we both know what it's it's like to be, um, I suppose, blue from time to time. We recognise it in one another. We point it out. My wife and I have a a thing that I'm her person, 
and her person would help her be the best person that she could be. So whenever I see something that's maybe uh, a little negative in my wife's life or something that she's fighting against, I'll say, listen, darling, I'm your person. Uh, And that simply says to her, I love you so much, I'm going to tell you something you don't want to hear. She does the same for me, probably more often for me than it is for her. But um, she pulls me back into line and I, I then notice because she's pointed it out and then I do something about it. Well, lots of us are lucky to be in a similar situation to that. Some not so much, but that's where the shed can come in. Your mates might not be as pretty as Stuart's wife, but they can still do a job for you. So. Well, I'll guarantee that. <laughs> Great advice as always. And as I say, I'm sure I will see the grumpy you at some point, but it seems most out of character most of the time. So we've got your wife to thank for that, I assume. Thanks very much, Stuart. Torrance Amsa, Men's Health Project Officer. Great to chat as always. Excellent. Thanks, Aaron. You take care, mate. Time for our Shed in the Spotlight. First up, show and tell. Let's showcase a project or product from our shed. We're heading to Victoria, where unfortunately they're still living the reality of lockdown. But I did have the pleasure of joining this shed via Zoom to celebrate its fifth birthday recently and to show and tell one of the great projects that is underway at the shed there. We're joined by Gunther Berend. Hello, Gunther. G'day, Aaron. How are you? Good. You have one of those names that could be pronounced about six different ways. Oh, more than that. It's Gunther, yeah. It's Gunther. Okay, Gunther will go with Gunther. I'm particularly interested to hear about this CFA project. I won't set it up any more than that. We were approached by the CFA Learning, uh, Education and Learning Division and... I should just say before you go any further that the CFA is the Country Fire Authority. Everybody has something similar all across Australia, but it isn't necessarily called the same thing everywhere. But it's the Rural Fire Service, right? That's right. And it's the northwest region of Victoria, and that's called, I think it's Region 2. And they have a community education group that... Go around to various shows and to schools and and try and educate children on on uh, you know fire and uh, try and promote the CFA. So they wanted a small fire truck built that was uh, about two meters long, uh, 1.4 wide and 1.3 high, roughly, and. Um, they asked us if we could do it, so we we looked at it and we thought, mm, yeah, it's a, you know it's going to be a, a a big job, but we uh, we took it on and we uh, started to build build this fire truck. Made of wood. It's made of wood. Yeah, it was made out of nineteen mil MDF or eighteen mil MDF, whatever it is, and uh, it started off by they already had one of these things built by um, one of the colleges, the Batman Institute. So you had a model to work off? Yeah, it was um, 
it's been there around for some time and, and it was getting a bit sort of dilapidated and um, they wanted a new one for the new district, uh, you know, to another district. So we had a look at it and I thought, yeah, we, we could probably do that. And uh, they wanted a quote, so I uh, got a quote together sent it to them and, you know, they, they sort of sat on it for some time and then, of course, they, they wanted it pretty much straight away when they did try and make a decision. Uh, the, the shed might be volunteer, but it works just like real business in that regard, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, and part of the, part of the uh, project was it would have its own closed-in trailer so that they could transport it around to the various shows and field days, that sort of thing. Um, so we had to make sure that it would fit into the, this trailer that was being made by a local trailer manufacturer. They liaised with, with him to make sure that when they come to put the thing in the trailer that it fits. The two items so, would talk to each other, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we, we, we started... Um, buying materials and uh, I did a, a three-dimensional CAD drawing to get some idea of sizes and things like that and then produced some drawings that the guys could follow. Uh, so we, we sort of had a little production line going. And so your computer-assisted design, it had all the dimensions and it was a case of grab a bit of wood and do your bit of the project, was it? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, we'd issue a drawing and, and usually I'd lay them out on the table and say, okay, grab whatever drawing you're comfortable with and, and uh, cut that out and we'll, you know, eventually uh, put it all together. How many so, blokes do you reckon worked on it in total? Some days uh, it was all the all the guys that were in the shed, so it could be you know like twelve people that were working on it. Um, and then there was painting and uh, sanding, routering, you know, all that sort of work that needed to be done by somebody. So you know, everybody, even if they weren't skilled at doing, can always sand back some paint or something like that. So it involved the whole the whole shed really. What gave you the biggest headache? Uh, painting. Why? We didn't want to paint it with a brush. We had organised for a local smash repairer to paint in the uh, the paint booth, but that fell through. So we tried to spray paint it in inside the shed. It it worked, but everything was red, <laughs> <laughs> including a few shedders, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. There was yeah, there was red everywhere on the microwave stove. It was on the fridge, and uh, <laughs> so that, that was a bit of a disaster. But that was the hardest part, um, you know, getting a good finish on it and uh, making it look good. Because even though it was wood, the kids would have pretended in their own mind that they were on a metallic fire truck, and so you had to give that appearance, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, we had sort of aluminium checker plate on all the, the wear areas where they'd be, you know, standing and sitting and, uh, you know, where their feet are on the on the floor or, or wherever. And um, so that took care of that area. 
but all the rest was subject to some sort of damage from wear and tear. And it was later on we got it back to to refurbish it and a repaint. But it, it, it was good fun. We, we had a great time building it. And uh, people people around the place, um, you know, they'd drive past and blow their horn and shout something out of the window, <laughs> you know, good on your fellas and all that sort of thing. I heard it became quite the local legend. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, you know, everybody seemed to get involved in it. People would pull up and say, what is this? And, we'd, you know, we'd talk to them and then they'd come in every so often just to see how it's going. And our shed at that time was in a car park for the medical centre that was uh, there. And, um, you know, the, the, all the people employed at the medical centre, they would uh, drive in and they'd go, oh, what's that? You know, what is it? And then we'd have to explain it to them. And then they got involved in it and they, they would want updates every so often. And they'd come in and say, oh, how's it going? So it sort of involved the whole the whole community almost. And, uh, you know, we had police cars stopping and say, oh, can you make one of, a police car for us? And the, the Ambos, oh, can you make an ambulance? And I assume the CFA were happy in the end? Oh, that, yeah, they were ecstatic. That was, that was you know, uh, I don't like to brag, but uh, I think it was a really good job. And, you know, everybody that saw it, that it was really good. So it came back for refurbishment, pretty much stripped it back, sanded all the paint back, fixed all the damage and repaired, you know, broken bits and uh, put it all back together again and uh, it looked like new. So they were happy with that. I mean, it's great to have a project where you come up with some really nice piece of woodwork or something that lives in someone's home and I love the idea of dining tables and that kind of thing but this really did have that community connection which makes it special. Yeah it it, it really did you know uh, and that was a fun part of it too you know the people would come in and you know you'd offer them a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and they'd sit and chat for a while and then off they'd go and someone else would come along and um, yeah it was good and it was good for the guys because they they really bonded during that it was four months I think that we took to build the thing and uh, we were working together every time the shed was open there was some people working on it so you know they were working together and it was great fun I think it's time to call the coppers, mate, and make good on that offer for a cop car. What do you reckon? The problem was this thing took up a, a lot of room. <laughs> so we had to rearrange the shed to get it in for a start. And then it remained there for you know three months or so before it became mobile and we'd push it outside and you know, work on it outside as well, uh, on a good day anyway. And um, that's when all the local people would see this thing because it was out nearly on the road. And, um, yeah, it was, it was just that room that we needed to to not only have the, the, you know, assembly area, but all the making all the bits and, you know, we had these big panels 
laying around and they were being painted and it, it was a it was a huge job really and apart from the fact that it captured the imagination it's probably been useful those kids will grow up to join the CFA and fight some fires and who knows someone's home will get saved as a result of that so it's a brilliant project thanks so much for telling us all about it on the shed wireless mate no worries it's a pleasure really good to talk to you and happy birthday <laughs> thank you <laughs> from Gisborne Men's Shed let, let, let me have a go Gunther Gunther Berent how close was I oh beautiful yeah terrific <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll get my pronunciation badge at Scouts next week <laughs> thanks very much mate great to talk to you alright Aaron thanks a lot bye Shedder in the Spotlight. Let's meet and learn about the life of one of our shedders. Our shedder in the Spotlight is Fred Smith. G'day, Fred. (laughs) I don't normally lead with a gentleman's age, but do you want to tell us how old you are? I am 93 next week. Happy birthday for next week. So it's been a shed birthday this week. And your 93rd birthday next week. Tell me your story, Fred. Yeah, well, I was born in a, a little English village named the Riddles of uh, Norfolk. That's the bit that sticks out towards Holland, you know, on the east coast. It is inclined to be a little bit flat, but um, <laughs> and I'm, 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 well, I, I like the, the hills and the mountains, but I was born in a... A county which is pretty flat. But anyway, I was born there in 1927. Uh, the, the actual village was not your sort of characteristic village. It, it had a church and a shop and a blacksmith shop, etc., etc. The only telephone we had was in the one shop. But of course, we had the Lord in, in the manor. And my father was the butler for him from, from 1926 to 1940. So, uh, of course, when I, I, when I was brought up at a very small age and my mother wanted to go someplace, well, I was part with the, with the staff in the hall and the, there was, um, I, guess, I think she was a scullery maid named Elsie and she used to change my nappies, etc. when I was <laughs> very small. <laughs> However, um, we used to spend as much time in the hall as we did in our own homes. With my father being the butler, of course, he never did a prestige there, and uh, it was all big time to us. But yeah, we, with the village, our village only had about 150 population, that's about all. Um, I was in the choir, and my son's the church organ at some stage, and even went round with the platers at, uh, at one stage, which is a job I did. Anyway, um, yeah, we. My mother really was before her time because she um, she taught us all about racism and equality of the sexes and respect for everyone, and it was it was excellent information. And we've had no, no bother whatsoever with all that sort of thing as we've grown up, you know. So. She, she was very, very good. Why do you think she thought that way when many others didn't, Fred? Well, she was she was from Wales, and uh, I think she was probably brought up with 
some sort of religious background, but not excessively so. But um, in fact, so in the 1984, when we were over there, she said to me, was well, probably 1986, she said to me, look, son, I have to tell you something, she said, there is no life there after. So, 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 so Do you believe her? I do. I do. She must have lived to a decent age as well, Fred. She did. She lived to 97. You, you got the good genes? Yes, and my father fell up his push bag at 85. <laughs> you stayed in England until you were an adult, yes? Oh, yes. I, I came here when I was 23. I see. But of course, you see, the war was in the middle of all that, and uh, uh, a champion died. He was the owner of the hall. He died in '39, and the war started in '39, September '39. And my father went into the army. He was on the reserves, and the hall was loose by a school and smoked lots of freehold later on. Army camps were built and built them. He had the searchlights and they built an American airfield B-17s, which we could see from from the house where we lived in. So the war was the war upsets everything. But I was in the air training corps. When you're 16 or 17, you you go up to London to attitude tests. Etc. So they're, what they're looking for is the possible air crew recruits. If the war was ongoing, so mm. to see when the war finished, well, they didn't want any of those. Didn't want any of those at all. But they did need administrative people, and, and by um, August, no, in January, it's not in '46. I was in Egypt in the RAF. Right. And uh, well, I didn't want to be in administrative work, so I manoeuvred my rover way around to being an electrician, so I transferred to being an electrician in Palestine, where I was then, and for Palestine, Israel today, was not very healthy in 1946. Help me understand the timeline, Fred. It's 1939, and the war breaks out, and you're still in Norfolk, but by 46, you're switching from being in administration to being an electrician, in yeah. Palestine. Yeah, that is correct. <laughs> That's quite a six or seven years right there. Well, I uh, I was always keen on history of how I am in the middle of it all. <laughs> so I got the chance to go into Nazareth and uh, the Golan Heights and uh, Tiberius and all these places and Jerusalem. That's, of course, it was kind of dangerous. In fact, we even got a medal out of it all over. Where'd you go to after that? Yes, uh, into Cyprus. Uh, as the British got out of Palestine, they shifted us all into Cyprus, and it was very nice on Cyprus. But here again, of course, the Greeks reckon they wanted one half, and the Turks wanted the other half, and in fact, it's still like that today. Mm. And um, so we were there for a while, and I enjoyed that very, very much. But then we went back to Egypt to the Canal Zone, right at the bottom of the canal there, a place called the Shalufa. And um, we were not there terribly long, so we went down to the Sudan, down to down the Khartoum. And I have a lot of fun over the years saying, of course, you know, I was with Kitchener in Khartoum. <laughs> <laughs>
But uh, here again, history, uh, I, I love the historic part of it all. And, um, General Gordon, he, he was killed on the town of Steps at some stage. And, and, the, and they kitchened us with the army from Egypt and defeated all the dervishes at a place called Omdurman over the river. And uh, yes, I, I kept my eyes open to the history of everything, you know, all the time. Were you ever fearful? You said before in Palestine that there was bombs going off every night. Did you ever come near to death at any point? No. We all had a three hundred three, which we had to carry around all the damn time. But um, I don't think we were ever encouraged to fire them off. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a good thing. That's probably a good thing. How did you get to Australia? Where did Australia come oh, into the yeah, picture? Well, I did my hit. Electrical engineering course in England, and uh, when that was all over, I came here in 1953. For a short time, I, I had a job with uh, the Thorn Atmosphere, it was a TV company at the time. So that was just a word of it, but and I very, I kept a very accurate eye on the on the state security commission's ads. And I was very quickly got a job with the State Security Commission and I worked with them until for the rest of my career. What did you make of Australia when you first got here? I thought it was probably a, a ten years behind the rest of the world. Give us an example. What do you mean by that? One of the things you learn very quickly when you come to a place like Australia, you never criticise anything. <laughs> never. Even if it's pretty bad, you never say, oh, boy, this is lousy. You don't do that. But at the time, the roads were bad, the, the transport system was bad. Everything in general was behind the times. And, uh, however, um, we got over all that, of course, in due course. But uh, I, I went to New Zealand a little, um, at one stage, and when I say Australia is 15 years behind, New Zealand is probably 25 years behind <laughs> at, at, at that time. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. But as I said, I spent the rest of the time with the SEC, which I found absolutely satisfying the entire time. You're still clearly very sharp. How's your physical health? Yes, I'm on, I'm on no medication whatsoever. I creak and it's a bit of the joints, I can assure you, but uh, I still drive. But I'm on no medication, so it's um, a good start. Uh, I'm on my own. I have to do my laundry, cooking and housekeeping and all the rest of it. My wife is in a, in, in a nursing home at the present time, so... Fred, you've had an amazing life. You're not a big believer that there's something to come on the other side of death. So, what do you make of it all? I was talking to Phil just the other day, and he, he was attending a philosophy course. Uh, and such questions as, <clears throat> "What was I put on this planet for?" That was one of the questions. That sort of self-analysis sort of thing. Well, I've never been prone to do that, but yet to me, it's the whole thing is a process of evolution. It all started from the, the primeval suits of way back, and then this is the result of all the experimentation the evolution has done. I don't know where the hell it's all going to end. Mark. I was going to say, do you think we're still going forward? <laughs> well, you see, there, there's all sorts of 
seeing like they reckon the sun is getting bigger in diameter all the time and ultimately it's going to swallow the earth up anyway. So, <laughs> so that's not a terribly I hope I get to your age one day, Fred, but even though I don't think I'll be around to see that happen. So. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, uh, the secret of it is to take an interest in everything that moves or is out there. You do, you must interest yourself in everything. You know what, sir? I've known a few men in particular who have gotten to your vintage and the one thing they have all had in common is that very fact. They've been infinitely interested in everything and it kept them sharp and it kept them interesting to other people. So I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you say. Yes, that is correct. Interest yourself in other people and have an insatiable curiosity about everything and you can't do wrong. I've loved meeting you, sir. Thank you for being our shedder in the spotlight from Gisborne. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Shed Story. Let's find out more about our shed in the spotlight. And to tell us all about the Gisborne Men's Shed, we are joined by Tony Cook, who is the equal longest serving member and the inaugural Shed Chairman. He was a part of birthday celebrations as well. Welcome to the Shed Wireless, Tony. Thank you, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be here. First things first, I was trying to wrestle with Gunther's name earlier, but you do say it Gisborne, right? Not Gisborne. Is that how you tell there's an out-of-towner that they say it Gisborne? Absolutely. We are Gisborne, part of the Maston Rangers. Beautiful part of the world, although it seems like wherever I talk to a shed, they're in a beautiful part of the world. We're pretty lucky in this country. As I've been mentioning, you've celebrated a significant milestone in this last little while. So tell us all about the Gisborne Men's Shed. We started in late 2010, early 2011, when our community health group here called Maston Rangers Health decided to uh, build a a shed for men to go and congregate and and look after their mental health. And uh, we had a call out for some members and we got about eight people at the first meeting and because I had the shiniest shoes they made me chairman of the meeting for some reason. <laughs> that's, that's a lesson for young players right there. Men sheds are like that. Yeah they are. Uh, we've made the joke a few times I don't think I've ever heard a single man who has said you know what and I said I'm going to go down there and get involved in the shed and yet once it gets its claws in you you find yourself with a badge don't you? That's right. But we were very fortunate because Master Range himself had a major commitment to this concept and uh, they supplied us with a building, they, they fully fund us, they pay for our electricity, our rates. The only thing we decided uh, as, as a contribution on our early days was to have a, a little money tin on the coffee table and we put $2 in uh, as a voluntary contribution just to help uh, buy incidentals. And uh, so that, that little shed uh, went really well. It was about the size of two double garages. Uh-huh. And the good thing about that shed, it was uh, there was no meeting room, so it was just a one big area. And uh, everyone had to talk to everyone else. And to stop for a, for a coffee break, we had to sort of you know, close the shed down and all get together. And it was a really good atmosphere, and I think people got a whole lot out of it. So we operated like that for about three years. And then um, we got this uh, <laughs> dreadful news that we were going to have to move in five days. 
How come? Well, Maston Ranger's Health had been given a um, $5 million government grant to rebuild their community centre. And uh, that was all going really well. And we thought we'd still be part of it. But when the builders finally came and fenced off the site and said, oh, no, that shed's got to be demolished to make way for a driveway. So Maston Ranger's Health were very embarrassed and we were, you know, up in arms. But we... Uh, did a typical, you know, men's shed activity, and we uh, we packed up all our gear, put it into storage, and then we decided to uh, rather than start another shed because we knew after a year we'd be getting more premises back. We actually went down to the old Gisborne Courthouse, which is just run by the Historical Society, and what we did we held weekly meetings down there of our same Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And we just had uh, meetings rather than doing shared activities. And, and that kept the group together, which mm. was very important that we do that. And uh, we actually found out a lot about each other uh, from having discussions and, and doing all sorts of uh, visits out to uh, other sheds. We saw about 10 or 12 other sheds. And we got the Maston Rangers minibus, and off we went with our minibus and a couple of cars and visited other sheds and learned quite a bit. So it was an interesting time, but a major upheaval. And then when the uh, when the uh, new premises were built for Maston Rangers Health, uh, we were lucky because um, coincidentally uh, I'd been invited to join the board of Maston Rangers Health and I was able to help uh, secure an, another building that we had which wasn't going to be um, demolished. Uh, and it was an old... Um, works office for these brothers when they used to have uh, business up here. And Maston Rangers Health had bought that land with that building on it for expansion in the future. And anyway, we were allocated that those premises and uh, there were sort of four major rooms and uh, we've now got a, uh, a very big workshop and a completely separate, fully enclosed uh, machinery shop. We have a nice meeting room. We can sit about 20 people in. We have a small kitchen and an office, and that's where we operate uh, in today's environment. And that explains why you've been around for 10 years, but you've effectively just celebrated your fifth birthday. That's that's right. I I think we were number shed 84 or 85. Oh, really? That is early on. So we're really quite, yeah, quite early. But we've had sort of three variations of our existence. Yeah. But, but it's, it's been really great. We've, um, we've kept a, a, a core membership, which um, you know, Gunther and I were at that first meeting, and uh, we've still got you know, most of the people around. We still have about 55 current members, which come and go. Uh, we open three days a week uh, for about you know, three, four hours a time. But I think one of the nicest things we've done in the... Uh, the last sort of uh, six, seven years, uh, we started having Christmas lunches with our wives or partners. And uh, that's we had the first three of those at my house. And then when we sold my house and uh, bought a townhouse, we had to find another place to have it. But it's enabled our wives to get to know each other and really um, extended the bonds in the community beyond just the men in the shed. So it's, it's you know, men's and women's and partners and wives and families now. How did that come about? Just a, a shed version of the old office Christmas party, was it? Well, um, I, I'm not quite sure how it happened, but it's, 
But it, once again, I must have had shiny shoes because it finished up happening at my place. And uh, <laughs> my wife and I sort of put on this huge Christmas lunch and we sat down about 40 people. We found tables and chairs and knives and forks. And uh, it then became an annual event. I think it was just uh, a few of the wives that said, well, we'd like to meet each other. And so we organised that event. But it's just an extension and uh, it gives the... When when the guys have got sort of issues and they won't talk about things, when you know the the whole family a lot better, it does enable a lot of things to be sorted out, helped, clear up. It just makes more openness and more friendliness, I think. Yeah, and sometimes it helps to have that bit of information so you can ask the right question of somebody as well, isn't it? Well, well especially when you when you when you know there's been a, a recent death in the family or there's been a recent cancer, you know, diagnosis, all sorts of things that at our age it seems to happen a lot more regularly. It, it does make you a little more tolerant, a little more understanding. And that's what the shed's all about when it, when it comes down to it. As I mentioned, I was fortunate enough to join your virtual birthday party and there was a lovely vibe. It was playful uh, between the men, you know, a little bit of good-natured teasing but with no barb in it at all, but a real sense of respecting what everyone brought to the table. What do you think is the magic of your shed? I think the magic of our shed is that there is no boss. There is no commander-in-chief. We are all equal and we all have equal says in what happens in the organisation and around the table. And while we have a meeting chairman, that's just to control the agenda. But everyone knows that uh, equality is the name of the game. The, the best thing. In my working life, I've never experienced this sort of camaraderie and friendship and understanding in a group of people. And it really is a unique situation. And we've noticed on our visits to other sheds, uh, uh, guys are under a lot more pressure because they're having to raise money to pay for things and they're having to... Uh, do a lot more of commercial activities. And we have this absolute luxury of being provided with these facilities and not having to worry about those sort of things. So we really are, you know, a tremendously um, uh, privileged position. And, and it's because Maston Rangers Health uh, recently merged with the, the Church of England group, Benitas, and, and they have taken on the same uh, degree of uh, support for our shed. So we are very fortunate, Chet, and we you know, can't be day on that one. I've loved having the chance to get to know your team down there. I was about to say your men, but there was a good chunk of women on that uh, party as well, wasn't there? There's, uh, there's plenty of women making a contribution to the success that you're having down there. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to spend some time with you all, and thanks for telling us all about your shed. Absolute pleasure, Aaron. That is Tony Cook, who, as you have heard, has been there from the very start, uh, one of, if not the longest-serving member and the inaugural Shed Chairman at Gisborne. Would you like to put your shed in the spotlight? Just contact us via email, theshedwireless@mensshed.net, and we'll take care of the rest. Depending which way you want to look at it, Greg Page is either incredibly lucky or incredibly unlucky. Incredibly unlucky because even though he is fit and young, has always looked after himself and has spent his life bringing joy to others, he had a cardiac arrest that nearly killed him. Incredibly lucky because if that happens, there's currently a 90% chance you won't wake up again. 
Incredibly unlucky, because he was already fighting a strange illness that forced him to quit the Wiggles. Incredibly lucky, because he's been at the heart of the Wiggles' phenomenal global success. The children's musical entertainment group has earned somewhere north of $300 million. But money doesn't matter if your heart stops and you don't wake up, and the original Yellow Wiggle isn't wasting his second chance. He's launched a campaign that might actually save your life one day. Welcome to The Shed Wireless, Greg Page. Oh, thanks, Aaron. Great to be with you. Really appreciate your time. January 17 this year, Bushfire Relief Wiggles Reunion Concert. You can't imagine a better time, a better place, a better reason to get together. You're on stage giving it everything, as you always do. When were you aware that something wasn't quite right? Not until I woke up in hospital, to be honest with you. Um, Really? Yeah, like... Because the Wiggles shows are very physically demanding, I don't remember much about the show at all. After I'd collapsed, lying on the floor and struggling to breathe because, you know, the show was pretty full on and I thought, oh, well, I'm exhausted. I need to lie down and have a rest. I didn't feel quite right, but I had no idea what was actually going on. And then I guess I blacked out and the next thing I remember, I woke up in hospital my wife was standing by the bed. I hadn't been operated on at this point in time. And Vanessa is a cardiac nurse. So I've had you know 10 years of Vanessa coming home from work and telling me about stenting procedures and what happens in the heart and how they do this kind of operation. Little did I know at that point in time, I was about to have one of those procedures done on myself. So I, I was very confused, very dazed. And I looked at Vanessa and I said, do you know what happened? And she said, you're having a massive heart attack. And that kind of blew me away. It was like having a heart attack, but I was so out of it still at that point in time, I didn't really comprehend it. I didn't really get the gravity of it. Then the next memory I have is waking up after the procedure in the hospital and the nurse telling me that I'm a very lucky man because I'd had a cardiac arrest and my chest will be very sore from where they'd performed CPR on me and they broke my ribs and that I had only a 10% chance of surviving. That's why I was very, very lucky. And that's what I remember. I don't remember any symptoms or warning signs leading up to it at all. We're talking about lucky and unlucky. You were incredibly lucky who was in the audience that day. Yes, and working as part of the Wiggles team. You know, it's I'm not downplaying the role of Grace Jones, the nurse, at all, but there are other people that do need to be recognised in this as well, and they are Steve Pace, the drummer for the Wiggles, Kim Antonelli, who was working on the merchandise desk for the Wiggles, and a GP who also jumped up out of the audience, Therese Wales. Those four people, I I call them my angels, (laughs) went into action immediately. I mean, I, you know, because I'm unaware of what actually happened, it's kind of frustrating, you know, I, I kind of almost want to ask Castle Hill RSL if I can have the um, CCTV footage of what happened because I want to see what people did. It, it really has blown me away that these people must have acted so quickly and known what to do and just been so comfortable to step up and have a go at saving a life because if they didn't, not only would I not be here, but the quality of CPR that I was given by these people the fact that my brain is functioning still well, I mean, I was out for 25 minutes or so. Were you? Yeah, 25 minutes of pumping away on my chest, trying to keep the blood flowing to my brain. And I've come out of it, 
I would say perfect. My, you know, Vanessa can't believe it either. As a cardiac nurse, she can't believe the outcome that I have achieved, thank God, and it is in no small part down to the response of these four people and the fact that they were confident to have a go at doing CPR. Two of them were trained in CPR. So Steve, the drummer, he had just completed a, a CPR course with St John Ambulance. Kim had done her CPR training as part of a football team that she was a part of at a school that she was um, employed at. Then Grace, of course, being a nurse, she, she would know CPR. And Therese Wales, the GP, would also be familiar with CPR. So these four people all knew enough about CPR to have a go at saving a life and not just save a life, but ensure that the outcome afterwards is as good as it can be. Can you believe that nine out of 10 people die who were in the same circumstance as you? Because it's a bit of a television trope, isn't it? That somebody goes down, everybody jumps on their chest and then they splutter and come back to life and are ready to slay the next <laughs> demon again. And that's not the reality, is it? No, it's not. Look, sadly, the reality is that 90% of people don't make it. And that really did shock me in hospital. Mm. First told me that like, it's been an interesting journey, you know, mentally for me, I'm a very positive person. And I guess because of my profile, because I know that that incident got so much media attention, I, I'm, in, I'm embracing that and using that platform now to spread the message. If I didn't have that platform, I don't know how I would be coping, to be honest. Had those people, had those four people on that night at Castle Hill not responded, there's an extremely good chance I would not be here. In fact, you know, I'd, I would almost say certainly I would not be here because after three minutes without CPR, your body starts to become depleted of oxygen. After six minutes, your brain starts to die. And then within 10 minutes, the body will be dead as well. So you've literally got three minutes to keep the blood flowing and keep it oxygenated by passing it through the, the lungs. But as I keep saying, it's now about spreading awareness. And I, I think there's several messages. One message I want people to know is that sudden cardiac arrest is different to a heart attack. You can have a heart attack and you'll have the chest pain, you'll have the heaviness, you'll experience those symptoms and that's the warning sign that you might go into cardiac arrest if you're having a heart attack that you don't um, experience any warning signs from you can go into sudden cardiac arrest and people around you won't know what's going on you'll just collapse to the floor and that's when people need to know how to respond so it's identifying somebody in cardiac arrest is the first step the second step is to call triple zero third step is to start CPR and the fourth step is to put an AED on that patient so that they can be shocked and have the heart rhythm brought back to a normal rhythm. I want to talk at length about your campaign and how we can all get involved. It has particular poignancy for the sheds. But before we do that, I just want to revisit something you touched on earlier, and that is what this has done to you, not physically, but mentally, how it has forced you to mm. confront your mortality. Because I speak plainly, Greg, 
You're a wiggle, you're a multi-millionaire, you're the best kind of celebrity, not the sort that has people taking camera shots of you over the back fence, but the one that sort of gets you good seats in restaurants. You really did win life, and yet this very nearly pulled the rug out from under you. There's no denying that that is the case. I've had an extremely good life, and lying on the floor there as I was taking those, well, what could have been my last few breaths... Yeah, it's an interesting thing to contemplate now in, in retrospect because I, I had no idea what was happening. Had I gone then and not come back, I, as far as I can kind of talk about it, it I would have just been going off to sleep. I find that kind of confronting and disturbing on some level as well because I think even if we had an acute event, we like to tell ourselves that you'd get that sense that this is goodbye, even if it's a hurried goodbye, but you're telling me you wouldn't have even gotten that. That's right. I wouldn't have known. But by the same token, there was kind of a, a peacefulness about that moment because I wasn't distressed. I wasn't, mm. you know what I mean? It, it's a, it, it wasn't freaking out going oh my god look Vanessa's not here to say goodbye to because that that was the case she was at home watching the live stream on tv with the kids no idea what was going on so it, it was a very strange night it was peaceful that's I guess all I can say there was no distress about it there was no worry there was no panic it, I mean yeah sure I was struggling to breathe it was a little bit uncomfortable but I, I can remember that feeling of kind of blacking out and just thinking oh well look I'm just absolutely exhausted I'm just relaxing now and I kind of just that was it that was the last thing I remember so it wasn't scary it wasn't painful it wasn't anything bad bad thing is that it very nearly was my last few moments on earth and I'm so glad it wasn't because I love life and I love having opportunities in life. I love creating opportunities in life. I love doing things. I love being productive. I love being helpful to people. And now I have possibly the biggest way ever to help people, and that is for them to understand their own health, their own mortality, as you say, but also their own ability to feel empowered to save somebody else's life if they ever need to. I'm glad I've got a second chance now to look at being a better person and doing things differently, making a bigger difference. It's, yeah, it's a very big thing to, to be given that second chance, knowing that 90% of people that go through what I went through don't have that chance. Every year, you know, in Australia, they say it's around 30,000 Australians every year that suffer a sudden cardiac arrest. So you're looking at about 90% of those people that don't make it. That's a lot of families who lose loved ones. That's fathers, sons, daughters, mothers, wives, a lot of people affected by the loss of those loved ones. And if I can make a difference, then that's what I want to do. And that's to say nothing of the additional trauma of having somebody suffer a cardiac arrest and not being able to help them because it's one thing to lose a loved one, it's another thing to have somebody in that state and you don't know what to do next. Before my event in January, I knew, I was going to say I knew nothing about CPR. That's not true. I did know a little bit about CPR, but I've never done training in it. Um, and I didn't know anything at all about AEDs. You wouldn't have been confident to jump on somebody else if they were in your situation? No, but I might have been confident enough to help 
And I guess this is the point. If you're the only person around somebody who's in cardiac arrest and you don't know what to do, short of calling triple zero, which everybody should do if they have a phone with them, you need to call triple zero and they will help guide you through it. But let's say you don't have access to a phone. I want people to feel empowered to do something because the Australian Resuscitation Council says any attempt at resuscitation is better than no attempt. So having at least some idea of what to do is doing something to help that person. If you are confident to do CPR and that person doesn't make it, at least you know you've done everything you can. If I had have flipped things back, if I'd have been the bystander back in January, I don't know if I'd have been confident enough to have a go at saving a life if I was the only person there, I would have freaked out. Now, I know a lot about CPR. I'm still not qualified, but you don't have to be qualified to do CPR. That's the beauty of it. All you need to know is what to do and why you're doing it. And really why you're doing it is to keep the person alive, to keep the blood flowing around their body and ensure that the blood is getting to their brain so that afterwards they're going to come out of that experience alive and functioning the best that they can be. So, if you feel empowered, you can try and save a life and walk away knowing that you've done everything you can. And if that person survives, well, what a great feeling that must be. If unfortunately that person doesn't survive, you're not going to have any guilt or um, resentment about the fact that you didn't know CPR and you should have given it a go and a wonder what if and all those questions. The research tells us that CPR and an AED can automatically increase the chances of survival to around 70%. So that's why I'm one of those lucky ones because I was 10%, went into cardiac arrest, but CPR and an AED automatically put me straight up to a 70% chance of survival. So that's the difference it can make. There is a narrative, and I've done any number of stories over the years on triathletes or ultra-endurance participants who had lived on pies and beer for too long, got to their mid to late 50s, had their heart attack, had their epiphany and reinvented themselves. And that's a great story and an understandable one. I'm interested, though, how you make sense of your story because you're not overweight You've always had a job and a life that, while I'm sure it's stressful in its own ways, is also about bringing joy into the world. You'd already had a bit of a health scare. How do you make sense of this happening to you? Uh, look, it's an interesting one, and I think there's a number of reasons. I wasn't overweight at the time I had my cardiac arrest. There was a time in my life about 13 or 14 years ago when I left the Wiggles I'd had a couple of hernia operations and I think that kind of set me back a little bit with my weight. I wasn't feeling well within myself. I suffered from a condition called orthostatic intolerance, which made me feel lightheaded and low on energy. And so I think back then I started to eat more because I wasn't feeling quite right. To try and get that lift. Yeah. And you know, a touring lifestyle isn't a great lifestyle, to be honest. You know, you're grabbing meals that aren't the best meals because you're limited on your choices sometimes. And yeah, I got to a, a point back then when I was around about 113 kilos, which I think, yeah, if you look at your BMI, I think I was definitely obese and, and possibly sort of morbidly obese range. And at that point in time, 
I was going through some emotional struggles. I'd, I'd separated from my first wife and I was dealing with quite a lot there. So I had a lot going on and I was probably in denial about my weight. You know, I, I look now and I think, my God, I don't remember being that big. But I met Vanessa in uh, 07, uh, just about a year after I left the Wiggles and she helped me turn things around. You know, she highlighted to me that, you know, man, you're looking a bit bit overweight there. I, I want you to be around when you're in your 50s. And I changed my diet. I got fit and healthy again and I, I lost that weight. So I got back down to at some, you know, my weight then fluctuated between 87 kilos and sort of 97. I, I kind of pushed again. So I was still struggling, you know, battling with weight. It would be on and off and on and off, but within that 10 kilo weight range. So I like to think that I was fit, but was I healthy? No, I don't think I was healthy, unfortunately. And some of that too is mental health. And I think for years I've struggled with self-esteem issues and self-worth issues, which might sound strange to people, but what I believe now is that emotional health or what, what people like to call mental health I prefer to call emotional health because our emotions can affect us in ways that we probably don't really understand. And I think one of those ways is our emotions are connected to our heart, which is something that we get taught from a young age. You know, you get taught, you know, do you think with your heart or with your head? And I think our heart is really the centre of our emotions. You know, we love with our heart. We always talk about that. The heart is the symbol of love. And I think but that has been a problem for me that, you know, emotional unwellness, emotional instability, emotional health hasn't been looked after internally by me. I'm the only person responsible for that. I now have learned a lot. And that's one of the lessons coming out of this for me that I need to take hold of my emotions and master them in order to stop these kinds of things happening again. Please invite me to mind my own business, but how can somebody who's been as successful as you and is as universally loved as you have a poor sense of self-esteem? Mind your own, no. <laughs> no, you're most welcome to say so. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm happy, happy to talk about it. Look, I won't go into the ins and outs of it, but it's, it's, it really is quite interesting what I have learned. And I guess it's a journey I've been on for all of my life and I've never really understood it until recently and that is that who we are as a person and I'm possibly going to get a little bit spiritual here now but who we are as a person is something that we can't control we're born as this person right all we can control is our reaction to who we are mm. if we are not happy with who we are, we have two choices. We either can change that or we fight it. And when we fight those things because we're unhappy, it's it's kind of like our, our internal barometers, our experience need to match our external barometers of our world around us. Mm -hmm. And when our expectations aren't met, that causes us stress. So if things are going on in our life around us that aren't meeting our expectations or are making us unhappy, that causes us stress and unhappiness and a bit of turmoil. The same thing on the inside. If we're unhappy with who we are, 
the way we, we react to people, the way we think we're perceived by people. You know, self-talk and self-criticism plays a big part in your emotional state. And I guess, like a lot of people, I've been guilty of self-criticism and self-talk and talking myself down and, you know, wanting to be a better person when I probably didn't need to be better than who I was. I say we are who we are and we have two choices. We either accept who we are and grow from that or we fight it. And if we fight it, we end up in a situation where we compound the problem and make things a lot worse. So it's a bit of a rambling answer, I know. No, it's not. It's very poignant. I'm interested, though, what the events of January 17 did to that journey because you were already well and truly on that journey prior to that event. So how did the cardiac arrest inform that process? After January, I I went and started seeing a chiropractor who actually practices another form of therapy called neuro-emotional technique. I'd experienced this before, but I didn't know what it was. And chiropractors would sometimes get you to put your arm out straight in front of you. They'll ask you a question. They'll push down on your arm. And depending on how your arm strength responds to the question, it can tell them stuff about your emotional state. And this is what I was talking about in terms of how the emotional state can affect the body because Mm. so I've had sore knees for many years and, you know, a sore back and whatever. And this is where it gets a little bit ethereal or esoteric maybe for for some people. But I do believe this to be true because I I personally responded well to this therapy. And these emotions can go back as far as your childhood. And when you tap into those emotions and work out what you were feeling as a child and why, you can work out some of the limitations that have been placed upon you by nobody else but yourself. (laughs) And... This is not to say that, you know, I'm not not pointing the finger of blame here at anybody, Mm. but I think as humans, we are kind of trapped inside this this mind that we're given. You know, we're given this mind and we're we're told we need to think certain ways about things. And it's true. We are socialised and social conditioning plays a part in who we are. But we also have to play a big part in who we are and accepting who we are, faults and all, that... I hated making mistakes. I hated being wrong about things. Mistakes are part of life. You know, everybody makes mistakes and there's no shame in making a mistake if you learn from it and grow. And that's what I'm talking about. We are, we have so much power as humans, so much power over who we are and what our life looks like. But sometimes we don't recognize that. We limit ourselves. We place these limitations on ourselves. And I guess that's what I've been doing. Rather than looking at it as a learning experience, if I made a mistake, I felt belittled. I felt smaller. I felt like I'd done wrong. And that's where I think I'd played a part in my own emotional journey in terms of placing some of those false expectations upon myself that didn't allow myself to to grow and flourish. And that resulted in stress. I really respect the honesty of that answer. Thank you very much. I can tell you that it is a real anxiety for a lot of people who spend time in men's sheds, and many of them would be listening right now, that they are genuinely terrified, obviously for themselves, that they could have a cardiac event and go down, but they're 
almost, I would suggest, equally worried that it's going to happen to one of their mates in the shed and what happens then. Please tell us about the campaigns that you are undertaking and how we might get involved for our own benefit. Fantastic. Yes, look, this is what I'm all about now, empowering people to feel like they can do something. And so on Saturday the 19th of September, a couple of days from now, together with Nextdoor, who is Australia's largest online neighbourhood network, we are holding what we hope will be the world's largest CPR class. It's an online event. It's live streamed at 7pm on the 19th of September, Eastern Standard Time. So people can log in for free. You can register at nextdoor.com.au slash heart of the neighbourhood because if you register, it will come up as that you've registered as a member of your local area and the local area or neighbourhood with the most people registering will win a great prize. I'll talk about that shortly. But the event is all about making sure that neighbourhoods or, you know, collectives of people, community groups are there for one another. And that's what Next Door is all about. They're all about building communities that are stronger, healthier, happier places where people look after each other. And really, that's my mission now too, to make sure that people, wherever they are, can look after somebody who's in cardiac arrest. So this event is all about introducing people to CPR, what it is and how to do it so that they feel empowered to have a go at CPR if they ever need to. Because as I said earlier, the Australian Resuscitation Council says any attempt at resuscitation is better than none. So as you were saying, for people that are at Men's Shed, if one of their mates go, goes down there, we want them to feel empowered to jump straight away into the chain of survival, which is called triple zero, start CPR and find an AED if you have one, an automated external defibrillator and shock that person with the defib to get them back to life. So that's really what this event is all about. So the more people that we can have tuning into this event, the more people we can have out there ready to perform CPR if they ever need to. It's such an exciting undertaking and when you think it through, it's hard to imagine a more important pursuit for a community, a more important baseline skill for there to be floating around every shopping centre, every soccer match, every men's shed in Australia, really. 75% of cardiac arrests happen in the home, right? So th this is why Next Door is so important to this campaign, because if you have a neighbourhood where people feel empowered to do CPR, if you have a neighbour that calls out for help because somebody's on the floor and needs CPR, if neighbours can come and render assistance, then that's what Next Door is all about. But it's so important because 75% of cardiac arrests happen in the home that we as neighbours and responsible next door neighbours know how to respond in those events and can help save a life. It's been interesting in the lead up to this campaign, I've been looking at messages from people and there'll be a lot of elderly people or people with disabilities who say, oh, look, I can't get down on the floor to do CPR. Should I still attend this event? And my answer is, yes, you should attend because even though you can't get on the floor to do CPR, you might be in the presence of somebody who doesn't know about CPR and you can then guide them through the process and help them and encourage them and make them feel confident. So even if you think 
doing this online CPR live stream is not for you because of physical limitations. There's no limitations in terms of being able to have that knowledge and pass that on to somebody else if you ever need to. So this event is really important. The instruction on CPR will be given by Surf Lifesaving, who are accredited trainers in CPR. They'll be talking about AEDs as well. It's only going to be a half hour event. There'll be a bit of entertainment there as well. The original Wiggles will be coming along to do Hot Potato with me, which is the song I didn't get to do on the night of the Bushfire concert because I was too busy having a cardiac arrest at the side of the stage. I was going to say fun. I mean, it is going to be fun. It's a very serious topic and we're going to be treating it seriously, but we want to make it an event that people want to tune into, like the old style telethons. They were entertaining, they were for a good cause, but there was entertainment. And this is going to be an infotainment kind of program for just half an hour or so on a Saturday night. Come along two nights from now, Saturday the 19th of September. You, you can get the link when you register through nextdoor.com.au slash heart of the neighborhood, and you can help win a prize for your neighborhood. And actually this competition is fantastic. I love what Nextdoor have done with this. They have decided that the neighbourhood with the most registrations will be deemed the heart of the nation in terms of being a neighbourhood that looks after one another. So they're going to give that neighbourhood an AED for the whole community to use. So it's a localised AED that can be taken wherever there might be a cardiac arrest in that neighbourhood. I'm going to be writing a song about their neighbourhood. So whichever neighbourhood wins, I'm going to find out everything I can about the neighbourhood, the people in it, what people love about it. I'm going to write a song celebrating that neighbourhood. And next door we're going to throw a neighbourhood party in line with COVID restrictions, of course, but we're going to be celebrating that neighbourhood because they have the most people registering to find out about CPR and how they can help their neighbourhood overcome adversity. I have really appreciated the practicality of you telling us about the campaign today, but also your openness and generosity in sharing your heart and mind around this journey, because it is something that many of our listeners are confronting. This is such a worthwhile event. We will be throwing our full support behind it, and we really appreciate you being here with us on the Shed Wireless today. Oh, no problem at all, Aaron. I really appreciate your support and getting the message out there, you know, in, in all ways, just about heart health in general, how to respond to cardiac arrest, and of course, about the live stream CPR class, thanks to Nextdoor. So thank you for playing your part. The original Yellow Wiggle, Greg Page on the Shed Wireless. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. With Rip Woodchip. I'm just up the back laying low. Yeah, it's that time of the month again. No, not the missus. Me. And I'm in the proverbial. Every now and again I get the Jimmy Brits for no bloody reason at all. Well, to others it seems like no reason, but at the time to me. There's a perfectly rational explanation. I'm surrounded by bloody idiots and the whole world's gone bloody mad. It's that simple. That's the way it feels anyway. No, no, I understand. It's all just a part of getting old. Grumpy old man syndrome, the kids call it. I'm not as bad as I used to be, though. For a while there, it seemed like I was the crankiest crow in the cornfield. No one could do anything right and nothing worked the way I wanted it to. I got to this point where I was just fed up with everything and couldn't be bothered holding nothing in anymore. 
No tolerance and no filter, the missus used to say. Yeah, I was a shocker, all right. I didn't just put me grumpy pants on of a morning. I was wearing the whole ensemble with matching socks and undies to boot. I'd get road rage just walking down the hallway. I got so bad, the missus sent me to the dock with a note. I felt like a bloody school kid at the time. But she said, either I go see the dock or she goes and stays with her sister. So, when I finally realised that I didn't even know how I liked my own coffee, I put my tail between my legs and off I went. The note said, simply, my husband has turned into a grumpy old man. I told the doctor I felt like I just couldn't seem to be bothered anymore. And everybody was getting on my nerves. I was feeling like every day was the same and there was just nothing to look forward to. He told me it was irritable male syndrome or andropause. Not sure why the women get menopause and we got that, but anyways. He said, as we get older, we lose our testosterone, which is pretty much our man fluid. You might consider it like the engine cooling or something. And then he said something to me that I've always kept in the back of my head ever since. Take kindly the counsel of the years and surrender the things of youth, which basically means you're getting old, so get over it. I couldn't understand at the time. I mean, I felt like I had every reason to be grumpy, but then I realised I was just frustrated. I started to realise it wasn't everyone and everything else, it was me. I was getting older and too bloody ignorant to admit it. I just wanted to blame everything and everyone else for the fact that I was still trying to do the things I've been doing since I was a pup, but just couldn't manage to do it the way I used to. The engine wasn't running as smooth and I was slowing down. It was taking me all night to do what I used to do all night, you know what I mean? You see, after I sold the farm five odd year ago, I was as bored as batshit. I was wandering around the house noticing all those little things I never seemed to care about before because I had bigger fish to fry back then, but now they were in full analytical view. I don't know how my missus got away with it for so long, but she'd been doing the housework the wrong way for 43 years, right under my nose. I don't know how she maintained such a beautiful home without my input. So what did the doc tell me anyway? He said, out with the old and in with the new, Rip. Learn to adapt. Find some new hobbies and activities that'll suit your age. Get active and find new purpose in your life. It was that day he gave me the brochure for the men's shed. I'll never forget it. Oh, I still have me moments now and again, fellas. I mean, I can't be Mr Happy-Go-Lucky all the time. And there still are a lot of stupid bloody people out there, mind you. But tolerance is me new testosterone. Anyway, fellas, I better go back down and do some sucking up or I'll be barred from the bedroom again. And it's a cold place in the doghouse. Anyway, fellas, catch you next time. See you, fellas. Bye. Got a question? Ask the doc, Professor Rob McLaughlin from AMSA Partners Healthy Mail. There's an adage you'll often hear in sport, especially boxing, that has a few variations, but it generally goes something like, Father Time is the only undefeated champion. Of course, the saying is pointing out that no matter how hard you train or no matter how hard you try, ageing and everything that comes with it is inevitable. 
Now, even though we know that from childhood, it's still pretty confronting and rightly or wrongly, we usually try to squeeze it down and suppress it until we can't deny it anymore, whether it's the creaky joints or the wrinkles in the mirror and whether it hits you like a ton of bricks or slowly dawns on you, the realities of ageing can get you down. So how do we deal with that? Well, let's ask the doc. Professor Rob McLaughlin AM is with us. He's a director at Healthy Mail, among many other things, including our shed wireless doctor in the house. Hello, Rob. G'day there, Aaron. This is a really important subject. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's a very complex relationship between our our physical health and our mental health. And uh, indeed, originally, when Healthy Mail started, we had a very much a focus on the organs, you know, the prostate, the testis, uh, erectile function, whatever. And we came to see how often that was associated with mental health distress, anxiety, depressions, or whatever. And that's a very strong relationship. But in the other direction, people who have mental health problems of whatever origin as they age may also often present with concerns about their reproductive system. For example, sexual dysfunction is very common. So it goes in both directions. Unless you're understand both sides of the equation, you're not going to do you know, the best job for, for the patient. So there's what we call a bi-directional relationship between your physical health and your mental health. It goes in both directions. And we've really focused in the last well, decade, I guess, on trying to increase our understanding and what we can offer the community and the profession about the understanding of this issue and how best to address it. And so amongst other things, we're very excited to have Suzanne now join the team uh, with us, uh, an expert in this area. And uh, it's this sort of expert advisory capacity that, that we can bring. Um, I think, you know, we'll make a difference to what we, we can give, give them in. You speak of Professor Suzanne Chambers AO, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology in Sydney. She has a particular interest and expertise in this subject and has been good enough to join us on the Shed Wireless. Hello and welcome. Thank you. Could you give us some context for how you come at this particular subject? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. So I do a lot of work with um, older men who are facing chronic disease. There is absolutely, as Rob said, this close relationship between physical well-being and mental well-being. As we age, we're just going to uh, find that stressful things happen to us. We can get uh, a diagnosis of a serious illness or it's just the, the years that make us not as strong as we used to be, not as quick as we used to be. And these are difficult things to face. There's an old um, saying that says uh, ageing, it's for the courageous, I guess is the way to say it, because it's quite, it's quite challenging in our heads. We really, we understand cognitively that we're going to age and our bodies aren't going to be the same, but it's quite a different thing when it starts to happen to you. And this is stressful and distressing. And, and so there's a real tie up between our physical well-being and our mental well-being. Is it fair to say that very often it is a physical manifestation that forces the mental engagement? In layman's terms, it's when you have some sort of ageing problem, let's say it's prostate, for example, that makes you suddenly realise you're not 22 anymore. Is that often the case? Look, I think so. Uh, we, As I said, we know we're going to get older and, and that life is finite, but we 
you almost act as if, if it isn't. And then suddenly when you when either you get a serious illness or someone around you, something happens to them, it brings it right in front of your face that you can't ignore the fact that you're getting older and that life is changing. And if you think of these things as life stresses that come along, um, which and it's not just about um, physical ageing, of course, as well. It's also about the life transitions that happen as we age, our work changes, we retire, uh, stuff happens with our children if we have them, all these things that happen around us and life goes through major changes. And even if they're positive changes, it's still stressful. And I think not taking account of that and understanding that can make us feel, make you feel more bewildered when suddenly you find you're not feeling quite the same emotionally or mentally as you were. And you wonder, well, where did that come from? But in actual fact, if you sat and thought about potentially the major life changes that you've been having, and, and that could be changes in health or changes in life situation, then it becomes pretty obvious there's a reason why this is going on for you. When somebody comes to you and they're not doing well, what sorts of things do you say to them? The first thing that I do is try and understand why the per- what's happening with that person. What is it that's worrying them? Um, and that could be a range of things. I think one of the hardest things when you're trying to, when you don't feel the way you want to feel, is to understand why it's why it's happening and get some awareness of it. Because we don't, it's it's unpleasant to not feel happy, to feel sad or to feel depressed. And so often we'll try and avoid those feelings through not talking about it, through withdrawing, potentially having a few more glasses of wine at night than we should. It, in paradoxically doing the things that are least likely to help us. Um, So it's really working with a person to say, let's look at what's been happening in your life and what has changed for you. Get some awareness of how you're feeling and thinking right now. And once we do that, we can make a plan to move forward. Because you've already, as has Rob, talked about the chicken and egg nature of mental and physical health. But I know from my own experience, if I have a physical problem, and it can be anything from a sore ankle to something more serious, it's not only the fact that you're dealing with that, it's your actual robustness, your capacity to deal mentally with what else comes at you. So something that when you're feeling strong and on top of it and have no physical problems, you would just take in your stride when you have a bad back or some test that's on its way that you're worried about or whatever, your ability to react to something healthily is really diminished. Look, I think that's right, and it's a really good way to put it. Often what I try and do with people is say, let's break this down. Let's look at objectively as best we can what's happening in your life and how you've been feeling, and then let's look at uh, the way you've been thinking about it. So uh, it's pretty typical. We all have these ways that we think about negative things or difficult things when they happen to us. And it's it's pretty common for people to catastrophize, to imagine it to be worse than it is, or to do sort of all or nothing thinking it's got to all be this way or else it's going to be terrible. So the way we think about things affects the way we respond to them, if that makes any sense. It's a story I often say to people is, have you ever had that feeling when you walk into the car park and you think you're walking to the car and it's not there. And if your immediate thought is someone's stolen the car, you're going to immediately feel very unhappy and quite ill. But if your thought is, oh, it must be the next row, your reaction to it is quite different. The only thing that's changed is the way you were thinking about it. I think that's a really good example. And it strikes me that 
there might be some unlearning involved in this as well, because take, for example, what people might have done in their jobs. Say you're a builder who turns up, or you might be a town clerk or even a policeman, and you turn up to a situation. Part of what we're trained to do is to run the worst case scenario. What might be the worst thing that's happening here and work your way backwards from there. But that's not a terribly healthy way to approach your own body and mind. I think that's true. It, it, sometimes we do that. We run the worst case scenario and then work our way back because we think it will help us feel more in control. And sometimes that might be true. But if all we're ever doing is running the worst case scenario through our heads and in our heads we're stuck in the worst case scenario, then that just makes you feel distressed. We are going to have a number of conversations. You've been very generous with your time and expertise, but I want to get on the record in our first chat, Suzanne, that you actually don't subscribe to the worldview that ageing is this inevitable deterioration until there's a bitter end, that you actually think that there's a lot of positives that come with ageing as well? There's no question that, and it's for all of us, we're all ageing and we wake up and go, oh, that never used to ache. That <laughs> used to feel a bit better than this. When did getting off the lounge require a sound effect? You know, that, Exactly. Or how long do I have to walk around in the morning before I can walk around straight? All of those things that just happen, or why do I always seem to feel tired? But in actual fact, you get freed of a lot of things as you age. There are demons we put upon ourselves when we're young about striving for this and looking looking a certain way, being a certain way. And you can free yourself of those when you get older and just go, you know what, this is who I am and I'm pretty damned happy about that. I'm sure I've made mistakes, but I've also done some great things. And to be get to get more comfortable in your skin and to be in a position where you really do acknowledge what you've learned and the wisdom you have and then look for your opportunities to share that. So you go through life, you learn a lot of stuff, and um, that's really important and valuable. And then when you get older, you can have the chance to share that and to be generous with what you know and what you have with others in a way that you might not have had time to do when you were younger and you were striving and you were trying to build a family and you were trying to build a career and and get over all of those early hurdles that you have in life. So I think there's a huge capacity for regeneration and taking certain risks when you're older that you couldn't do when you're younger when you had to worry about the practical matters in a different way. Is the takeaway from this conversation then think about how you think about things? (laughs) That idea of your posture at a problem will actually affect the problem? Absolutely. And we call them automatic thoughts. We have these patterns we can get into in our heads where we go around in circles, not to our best advantage. So I will often say to people, get some awareness of what you're thinking in your head and then imagine that you were your own best friend what would your own best friend say to you and how would um, how would your own best friend coach you to think about the future, the, think about both the present and the future in a more helpful way um, and just being your own best mate in life? That's super useful stuff, Rob. No, absolutely. General words of wisdom. Yeah, I think you're getting a sense, uh, Aaron, as to why we're so thrilled to have Suzanne giving us uh, these insights, uh, that healthy male, because uh, – 
the way she, she puts these things, I think, have just got to resonate resonate with me and supreme with you and I suspect most of your audience. Unquestionably, and this is it. It's all about taking some quite complex issues and trying to put them in a practical framework that we can use on a day-to-day basis. That's what Ask the Doc is all about. Uh, Professor Rob McLaughlin, thank you. You are incredibly generous and humble the way you keep inviting your friends to the table uh, so that we can get the very best expertise. And so we appreciate you doing that again. And uh, Professor Suzanne Chambers, Dean of the Faculty Health at the University of Technology, Sydney, thank you. We are going to lean on you further if that's okay, because uh, in some ways we are a bit better mechanics uh, with our body than we are with our minds. So we might call on your expertise again in an upcoming episode, if that's all right. Be delighted. For a great range of resources and tools to help you live well, head to the Spanner in the Works website. You can just search it up or go to mailhealth.org.au. Everything you hear on the Shed Wireless is created to inform and is not intended to be a substitute for personal advice from your doctor. We've pulled the door closed on this episode of the Shed Wireless, but... Before we go, we have a ton of correspondence. Thank you to everyone who has been in touch. It really does give us a buzz. All you have to do is write to theshedwireless at menshed.net with whatever it is that you want to correspond. And here's a range of correspondence this week. First up, Bob from WA, who commented on the subject of men hugging men, which was discussed in our Father's Day episode. Says, uh, Aaron, just listening to the podcast, and I noted the talk with Stuart. We were talking about hugging. You need to find out all about what happened at Albany Men's Shed Muster in September last year, which was related to me broaching the topic of hugging my sons and grandsons. Before long, Marty from Answer was hugging all the shed representatives as they came to the front of the hall to receive a presentation plaque from Albany Men's Shed. Interestingly, no one really objected. I'm sure Marty would confirm there were some astonished old blokes out front of a couple of hundred fellow shedders getting a hug from another bloke enjoying the podcast. Bob, I seem to remember something happening at the South Australian Conference with Marty giving unsolicited hugs as well, David. Yes, he's he's a bit of a serial hugger, Marty. Uh, Marty's very much full of affection and, you know, and sincerely affection with with a lot of the blokes out there in the sheds. And he's a a good sounding board for a lot of the guys out there. If you haven't heard the back episodes about this, particularly if you are like Marty, and I'd put myself in that category as well, a bit of a, a hugger, somebody who likes to have a bit of human contact the whole COVID distancing thing can be a challenge but it's something that we've tackled in previous episodes I encourage you to go and have a listen next bit of correspondence is from Atherton and it says g'day Aaron I've really enjoyed listening to each podcast thanks for all the work and effort to you and the team are putting into the programs if you'd like to do another shed story down the track I am more than happy to chat to you about Atherton in far north Queensland that comes from John White secretary I, I might be the one that makes all the noise, John, but I can tell you I've spoken to the actual authorities and they've said that we're very likely going to be in touch in the not-too-distant future, so stand by for that. From Greg Kirkham, or Gregory more properly, would it be possible to send a message out to all of the men's shed groups in and around Sydney and as far away as up to Armadale, asking for volunteers to assist with the Yarrowitch Blaze Aid Camp, please. The camp will be open from the 28th of September and operate for five to six months. 
Volunteers need their own accommodation, that is to say a caravan. However, power and food will be supplied free of charge. If any Men's Shed member would like to volunteer or wants more information, they can contact Gregory, who is the Yarrowitch coordinator, on 0401 310078. That's 0401 310078. And if you're new to podcasts, most of the places you listen, you can hit one button that'll take you back 30 seconds. So go and get a pen, hit the back 30 seconds button, and you can get that number again. There's also an email, blazeaid.yarrowitch at gmail.com. And apparently it's particularly challenging because the normal volunteers, the grey nomads who obviously have their accommodation and often want to give back, they're very scarce with the travel restrictions due to COVID. I was only talking to a grey nomad yesterday who's been involved. I don't know if it was specifically in Blaze Aid or one of the other rural support things, but they're trying to judge the health and safety implications versus the need that's out there. So, yeah, the problem is real. Hopefully you'll get a few there, Gregory. And from Robert Hayes on Facebook, come on all you shedders if you haven't listened yet. It's about time you did. Every Thursday it goes online. He's talking about the shed wireless. And in all seriousness, most of our shedders, I would think, given their slightly complicated relationship with technology, will probably need a mate to give them a leg up. So please be that guy and introduce them to the shed. I know, for example, somebody who isn't a shedder, but his daughter knows about it, tipped him into it, and he's basically been walking around for the last two weeks listening to the entire back catalogue. And I think we might be like water on rock, David. I think we might be dripping him back into a shed. Yeah, and a few of the sheds are playing it too um, in the lunchroom for everyone to hear as well. So for some of those guys who haven't got computers at home, they're setting them up and listening to it in in the lunchroom while they're having a cuppa. Excellent. If you only ever listen to one episode, however, make it the next one because, David, uh, you in particular have been working hard, but everybody has pulled together what we think will be one of the more useful conversations any shed could listen to. Do you want to elaborate? Yeah, so there's a lot of workers everyone would know by now. They would have seen the emails going this week, the new uh, deductible gift recipient clause for Men's sheds to be recognised as, uh, well, they are recognised as charities, but to have that DGR, as we call it, uh, application, the legislation passed government uh, two weeks ago and it's been passed now, passed into law, and it will become effective on the 1st of October. And there's a lot of backstory in this. We're very lucky next week we've got some of the key people involved in this. The first section there, we have um, Ted O'Brien, the member for Fairfax, on. Now, Ted's also taken over from Mark Coulton as the co-chair of the bipartisan friendship group for Mensheds down in Canberra. But Ted also was the politician who first got involved in really supporting this legislation to go through. Ted worked closely with us in writing some submissions, and he took them on our behalf to Josh Frydenberg, the treasurer, who endorsed it, and the rest became history from what all the sheds see. But behind the scenes, there's been a lot of work over the last few years, especially this really started to accelerate in the last six months once the legislation was before Parliament. So next week, we're also very privileged to have two astonishing ladies from the ATO and the ACNC who are 
all over this. They head up sections of those two departments that have been working in co-design groups for the last three months, along with myself and other representatives of the AMSA team, to put through how this is going to work and the processes sheds will have to be. And I know, judging by the phone calls and emails we've had, through AMSA in the last couple of weeks and there has been hundreds if not thousands of them wanting guidance well next program we have the two wonderful ladies on Jennifer and Anna who will be able to explain the whole process to them and talk more in depth of, of what sheds have to do to register to become a DGR charity so that's probably one of the most significant things that's happened for men's sheds in the last decade is to have this achievement put in place and it's going to benefit all the sheds around the country so if they're going to listen to one episode the most useful episode will be that coming up next week Aaron. So you have a short amount of time to make sure that you are geared up to get that episode if you don't know how to do it or if someone at your shed doesn't please spend some time getting them up to speed because as David has alluded to there, I'll be more direct than him. There's literally millions of dollars at stake across Australia for all of the sheds if you get this right. So tune in next episode. Thank you, David, as always. Thank you, Aaron. You have a great fortnight, mate, and I'll speak to you very soon. Thank you also to Greg Page and the team at Nextdoor. A reminder, that's happening on Saturday night. If you've listened to this early enough, you can still be a part of that great initiative. Gisborne Men's Shed, thank you, Professor Rob McLaughlin and Professor Suzanne Chambers, Stuart Rip, Helen Clare and the whole AMSA team. We'll catch you next episode. The Shed Wireless is available via some community radio stations. Contact your local station to find out when you can hear us. If they don't have the show, put them in touch and we'll help them out. You can also find The Shed Wireless in Apple iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Red Circle or just Google us. Wherever you find us, please subscribe so that each new episode gets delivered straight to you. Giving a rating or review helps others to find us more easily. But most of all, please share us with your mates, even if they've never seen a shed, through email, newsletters, word of mouth, ring a mate and give him the tip. Maybe your wife might even like it. We love your email correspondence to theshedwireless at mensshed.net or just head to the AMSA website, www.mensshed.org and see what's going on with The Shed online while you're there. It's also a great way to connect with a range of resources, websites and national helplines, including Beyond Blue. If you're experiencing a mental health crisis, call Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14 or Men's Line on 1300 9879 Thanks for listening to the Shed Wireless the wireless you'd listen to if you were in the shed